Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The Law School of America. The attractive nuisance doctrine applies to the law of torts in some jurisdictions. It states that a landowner may be held liable for injuries to children trespassing on the land if the injury is caused by an object on the land that is likely to attract children. The doctrine is designed to protect children who are unable to appreciate the risk posed by the object, by imposing a liability on the landowner. The doctrine has been applied to hold landowners liable for injuries caused by abandoned cars, piles of lumber or sand, trampolines, and swimming pools. However, it can be applied to virtually anything on the property. There is no set cutoff point that defines youth. The courts will evaluate each child on a case-by-case basis to see if the child qualifies as a youth. If it is determined that the child was able to understand and appreciate the hazard, the doctrine of attractive nuisance will not likely apply. Under the old common law, the plaintiff, either the child, or a parent suing on the child's behalf, had to show that it was the hazardous condition itself which lured the child onto the landowner's property. However, most jurisdictions have statutorily altered this condition, and now require only that the injury was foreseeable by the landowner. History. The attractive nuisance doctrine emerged from case law in England, starting with Lynch v. Nerdon in 1841. In that case, an opinion by Lord Chief Justice Thomas Denman held that the owner of a cart left unattended on the street could be held liable for injuries to a child who climbed onto the cart and fell. The doctrine was first applied in the United States in Sioux City and Pacific Railroad Company v. Stout, an 1873 case from Nebraska in which a railroad company was held liable for injuries to a child who climbed onto an unsecured railway turntable. The term attractive nuisance was first used in 1875 in Cafe v. Milwaukee and St. Paul Railway Company, a Minnesota case. The doctrine has since been adopted in some other common law jurisdictions, such as Canada, but not universally. Conditions According to the Restatement of Tort Standard, which is followed in many jurisdictions in the United States, there are five conditions that must be met for a landowner to be liable for tort damages to a child trespasser as a result of artificial hazards. The place where the condition exists is one on which the possessor knows or has reason to know that children are likely to trespass, and the condition is one of which the possessor knows or has reason to know and which he realizes or should realize will involve an unreasonable risk of death or serious bodily harm to such children. The children, because of their youth, do not discover the condition or realize the risk involved in intermeddling with it or in coming within the area made dangerous by it. The utility to the possessor of maintaining the condition and the burden of eliminating the danger are slight as compared with the risk to children involved, and the possessor fails to exercise reasonable care to eliminate the danger or otherwise to protect the children. See Restatement of Torts Section 339. Jurisdictions. U.S. states that use the restatement test include Alabama, adopted in the 1976 case Tolbert v. Gullsby, 1976. Arizona, C.K. Spur Feeding Company v. Fernandez, 1970. Kentucky, C.K. Louisville and R. Company v. Vaughn, 1942. Minnesota, adopted in the 1935 case Gimistad v. Rose Brothers Company, 1935. See also Johnson v. Clement F. Scully Construction Company, 1959. Missouri, C.K. Anderson v. Cahill, 1972. New Jersey, C. K. Simmel v. New Jersey Coop Company, 1958. 
North Carolina, C. Case Dean v. Wilson Construction Company, 1960. Ohio, C. Case Bennett v. Stanley, 2001. Pennsylvania, adopted in the 1942 Case Thompson v. Reading Company, 1942. South Carolina, C. Case Henson v. International Paper Company, 2007. Utah, C. Case Pullen v. Steinmetz, 2000. Tennessee, adopted in the 1976 Case Metropolitan Government of Nashville v. Counts, 1976. Texas, C. Case Texas Utilities Electric Company v. Timmons, 1997. Wyoming, C. Case Thunder Hawk by and through Jensen v. Union Pacific Air Company, 1995. Comparative responsibility, known as comparative fault in some jurisdictions, is a doctrine of tort law that compares the fault of each party in a lawsuit for a single injury. Comparative responsibility may apply to intentional torts as well as negligence and encompasses the doctrine of comparative negligence. Comparative responsibility divides the fault among parties by percentages, and then accordingly divides the money awarded to the plaintiff. The plaintiff may only recover the percentage of the damages he is not at fault for. If a plaintiff is found to be 25% at fault, he can recover only 75% of his damages. There are several circumstances that make comparative responsibility intricate. When the plaintiff shares in fault for the damages, when a defendant who has a share of the fault cannot be included in the suit, when one of the defendants cannot pay, and when there are charges of both negligence and intentional torts in the same action. United States. Currently, only Alabama, Maryland, and the District of Columbia will not allow a plaintiff to recover if it is proven to be in any way at fault. This rule is called contributory negligence, a doctrine perceived to be overly harsh, which has caused all but a few states to substitute the doctrine of comparative negligence. Most states will follow one of three solutions to the problem. 1. Allow the plaintiff to recover the amount of total damages to him, reduced by the percentage of fault he has assigned. 2. Allow the plaintiff to recover only if he was an equal or lower percentage at fault than each defendant. Plaintiff's recovery is reduced as in 1. 3. Allow the plaintiff to recover only if he was less at fault than each of the defendants. Plaintiff's recovery again reduced as above. Another situation is where a defendant apportions some fault cannot pay his portion of the damages. States will cover this situation differently. There are four options. 1. The plaintiff will not recover from this defendant, and the other defendants will be responsible only for their share. 13 states follow this approach. The next three options involve the doctrine of joint and several liability. 2. Any of the other defendants can be held responsible for the unpaid share. 15 states follow this approach, 10 contributory responsibility, 5 which still follow contributory negligence. 3. The unpaid share will be reapportioned among the other defendants, according to their percentages. Some states hold that only defendants above a specific percentage will share. 4. The unpaid share will be reapportioned among the defendants and plaintiff according to each party's percentage share. Third, is the issue of when one defendant is not present, the same options as above are present. However, there is the initial question of whether to allow the fault of an absent defendant to be considered. States, again, are split on these issues. Lastly, there is the issue of negligence and intentional torts in a single lawsuit. Courts, in the majority, do not apply comparative responsibility to intentional torts. However, some courts apply comparative responsibility to intentional torts. The law and academia on this issue is very complex, but typically support holding intentional tortfeasors in a suit subject to join and several liability. Further, any negligent tortfeasor who negligently failed to protect the plaintiff from the intentional tortfeasor will be jointly and severally liable for the portion of the intentional tortfeasor's fault. This view is supported by the Restatement Third of Torts, 
Apportionment of Liability Section 1. Even more complicated is the issue of whether comparative fault should be allowed in strict liability actions. Most jurisdictions, starting with California, which also pioneered strict liability for defective products, have held that the jury should be allowed to apportion fault between plaintiffs and defendants even in strict products liability actions. The Restatement Third of Torts, Section 25, reflects the current majority view that comparative negligence applies to the strict liability of the defendant. In some common law jurisdictions, contributory negligence is a defense to a tort claim based on negligence. If it is available, the defense completely bars plaintiffs from any recovery if they contribute to their own injury through their own negligence. Because the contributory negligence doctrine can lead to harsh results, many common law jurisdictions have abolished it in favor of a comparative fault or comparative negligence approach. A comparative negligence approach reduces the plaintiff's damages award by the percentage of fault that the fact finder assigns to the plaintiff for his or her own injury. For example, if a jury thinks that the plaintiff is 30% at fault for his own injury, the plaintiff's damages award will be reduced by 30%. History The doctrine of contributory negligence was dominant in U.S. jurisprudence in the 19th and 20th century. The English case Butterfield v. Forrester is generally recognized as the first appearance, although in this case the judge held that the plaintiff's own negligence undermined his argument that the defendant was the proximate cause of the injury. Whether contributory negligence is construed as negating proximate causation or as an affirmative defense, the effect is the same either way, the plaintiff's contributory negligence bars his or her recovery. Burden of Proof In some jurisdictions, in order to successfully raise a contributory negligence defense, the defendant must prove the negligence of a plaintiff or claimant. In others, the burden of proof is on a plaintiff to disprove his or her own negligence. Even if the plaintiff was negligent, the tortfeasor may still be held liable if he or she had the last clear chance to prevent the injury, meaning that even though the plaintiff was negligent the defendant was the last person with a clear opportunity to take action that would have prevented the plaintiff's injury from occurring. Examples of Contributory Negligence Example 1. A pedestrian crosses a road negligently and is hit by a driver who was driving negligently. Since the pedestrian has also contributed to the accident, they may be barred from complete and full recovery of damages from the driver, or their insurer, because the accident was less likely to occur if it hadn't been for their failure to keep a proper lookout. Example 2. Another example of contributory negligence is where a plaintiff actively disregards warnings or fails to take reasonable steps for his or her safety, such as diving in shallow water without checking the depth first. Pleading requirements. In some jurisdictions, such as United States federal courts, contributory negligence must be pleaded in the defendant's answer to the complaint as an affirmative defense. But in some jurisdictions it may be applied by the court in a tort matter irrespective of whether it was pleaded as a defense. Availability. The contributory negligence defense is not available to a tortfeasor whose conduct rises above the level of ordinary negligence to intentional or malicious wrongdoing. The classic version of contributory negligence, where a plaintiff who is even 0.01% negligent is barred from recovery, nowadays is referred to as pure contributory negligence. Some states have adopted a modified or mixed version of contributory negligence where the plaintiff is only barred from recovery if he or she was more than a certain percentage at fault, typically, more than 50% at fault for his or her own injury. United States. In the United States, the pure contributory negligence only applies in Alabama, Maryland, North Carolina, and Virginia. The District of Columbia largely follows the contributory negligence model, but with exceptions for motor vehicle accidents involving pedestrians and bicycles. Indiana applies pure contributory negligence to medical malpractice cases and tort claims against governmental entities. 
In the other 45 states in the U.S., plaintiff's recovery is simply diminished by the extent to which he or she contributed to the harm under principles of comparative negligence, with some states using a mixed model of comparative and contributory negligence. A state with a mixed model may, for example, prevent a plaintiff from recovering damages if the plaintiff is determined to bear more than 50% of the responsibility for his or her own injury. It is not a defense to any intentional tort. United Kingdom. In England and Wales, it is not possible to defeat a claim under contributory negligence and therefore completely deny the victim compensation. It does however allow for a reduction in damages recoverable to the extent that the court sees fit. In England and Wales, it is not a defense to the tort of conversion or trespass to chattels. The Law School of America. The Law School of America. The content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation Incorporated under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The text has been modified for audio. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. These podcasts are not associated with the Wikimedia Foundation in any context.